Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Jordan Daniel Wood. Dr. Wood recently released a book with the University of Notre Dame Press called The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation, and Maximus the Confessor. Uh, we talk through some of the uh, provocative ideas in this book um, and also uh, go into a little conversation on Hegel, uh, which will be a first for this podcast. We have not discussed Hegel very often, as I am not all too familiar with it, uh, but, but also we just discuss the sort of general questions that surround this book, uh, what makes this a kind of challenge, uh, what makes this interesting. Um, and, and I think that you will uh, appreciate this conversation. Um, the, the book has been endorsed by John Baer, Father John Baer, as well as uh, Dr. David Bentley Hart. Um, so it's, a, it's making quite a big impact in the th theological conversation, especially in the reception of uh, Chalcedon, which we've also been talking about. So I would encourage listeners, um, after they listen to this conversation, um, to listen to the conversations that Tom, Trevor, and I have been having, trying to explain some of the history surrounding the Christological controversies, um, because Maximus the Confessor comes later than those. Um, so may maybe even be better to listen to those first. Uh, but, but Maximus is one who kind of continues the conversation uh, from the Council of Chalcedon in order to continue to think through exactly what we mean to say uh, when we say that Christ is fully God and fully human. Um, so thanks for listening. Uh, we appreciate uh, any comments that you all would share on, either on Facebook or on our webpage at ahistorychristiantheology.com, as well as rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Um, we still have uh, a few more conversations to go. Uh, in the Christological Controversy series, um, as well as a conversation coming with Benjamin Wheaton on uh, th what the atonement looked like in the Middle Ages. So thanks for listening, um, and uh, hope you appreciate this conversation with Dr. Wood. So uh, you, uh, and and well, I, I'll give you a kind of introduction. I mean, uh, the, the book is The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation in Maximus the Confessor. But I was actually just uh, – this is with the University of Notre Dame Press. Uh, but I, I had actually looked up when is this supposed to be released as a, as a book? So it, the release date is October 15th coming up here. Oh, okay. You know, I guess what, six, seven weeks. Very yeah. good. And have you been doing lots of uh, – I think I've seen one interview maybe out there, but you've been doing other interviews about it? Yeah, not not yeah, like not a not a whole lot recently. It was kind of funny. I feel like about a year ago, you know, because because I've been done with the book for a while, you yeah. know, on my end for a while for the most part. And so last year there were a few a few uh, people that got their hands on it even earlier than you you did, and got like earlier versions of it. And so I did a few podcasts with them, but but that's because I didn't know. I just the projection date of the production and the publication wasn't clear. And so I was like, sure, I guess we can go ahead and do this. And so um, you're kind of the first one, though, that's anywhere near the actual publication date. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Well, we're, yeah, we're recording this in August. I suspect that I will get it on the docket, actually probably closer to its release date. There you go. Um, yeah. so I've been recording a lot of stuff this summer um, uh, so yeah, so we're, you know, we're probably looking at like September or something like that. Yeah, no, that's great. Yep. Um, and what is it, what are you going to be like, do you have a, a title that I should, I mean, you're Dr. Uh, Jordan Daniel Wood, uh, yeah. but is there a position that I can, we can talk about or anything like, you know what you'll be doing this coming year? 
Uh, I have no clue. I mean, the, no, I have no, the short answer is I have no position or title okay. or I'm not teaching or anything. Um, I have a, I'm a little, I'm a, I'm on a team that has received a small grant to translate okay. some shelling, late okay. shellings, uh, lectures in the philosophy of revelation. So I'll be staying at home doing two translation projects. One is shelling. And then the other one is, um, uh, Maximus's letters for the fathers okay. of the church series. Okay. But, but no, I have no, <laughs> I have no title. I'll just be, I, I, as I always say, I'm just going to be working in my garage, you know, listening to Weezer or something. <laughs> and, and doing some Greek translation and shelling, doing some German. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. Well, that's good for you. My, I mean, I started working on my uh, like Duolingo and some other stuff that I do when I was like trying to up up do better in a language. Uh, but man, my German is just always feels like it's way behind. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that ever will go away for any of us <laughs> that haven't been growing up speaking it. It's, uh, yeah, no, I, I kind of stumbled into that project. Clearly, it's outside of my, you know, well, I guess expertise or wheelhouse although it isn't outside of my interests. And uh, it was just sort of an idea that my a colleague and I had years ago to, to translate this. And we pitched it to University of Notre Dame's John Betts, just to even see if it would be a good idea. Anyway, it's kind of snowballed into a larger thing. And so, um, yeah, I'm, so I'm a, I'm a full-time stay-at-home dad, but my wife is a nurse. And so since she works three long days a week, it means I basically get like one or two days a week where I can kind of piddle around in the garage. And whereas most dads would be, you know, I don't know, fixing cars or <laughs> doing something useful, I'll be translating Maximus and Schilling. <laughs> yep. That's so, about how I feel. I'm doing. I'm doing a something on Augustine for the New City Press. Um, nice. So yeah. So I sit up in my. I I'm in my office, but uh, upstairs. <laughs> um, but yeah, just uh, you know, trans every. I'm doing on on the one baptism de unico baptismo, which is everyone always goes. You mean de baptismo? No, there's another one that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's not all that interesting. But at least I get to be the first one to put it in English. So there you go. Well, let's see. We'll see. We'll see what happens. It sounds cool. <laughs> it it's not that cool but i'm i'm doing it and uh it's it is but it's the same sort of thing like well what do you do with your summer well i play pickleball uh and i ride my bike and then sometimes i read some latin there you go that's not a bad life <laughs> um no it is not at all i'm i'm i am very i i'm i will that's the thing like like I, i'm a little like you every year i just hope i have a contract um right. and and so it's like i'm gonna ride the wave as long as i can ride it because it's a it's a great life while i can get it um mm -hmm. and uh if i have to go back to being a painter i guess i will yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> we have to be versatile in these times <laughs> that's right <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk about uh, the book itself. And you started with Schelling, and I was just rereading the uh, conclusion where you start talking about Hegel. So I don't think right. Schelling gets a uh, – maybe he does that I missed. Uh, get, oh, yeah, well, you actually – no, the first uh, – sorry, in the epigraph, you actually have a, a quote from Schelling on there as well. Uh, but sort of um, – it is interesting, the overlap with uh, m more uh, modern German philosophy uh, in this work on Maximus. But I think you say in your conclusion something like you didn't recognize that you that, – that some of the stuff that Maximus says has a connection to or sounds similar to uh, what will be uh, discussed in Hegel. So 
yeah, what what is the connection here? I I mean, my my knowledge of Hegel is is minimal at best. We had to read some. I was a philosophy major undergrad, um, but um, we mostly did analytic stuff, um, and so we like we laughed at Hegel because we couldn't understand him, um, and then we moved. <laughs> <laughs> so what what is the connection between Hegel and Maximus? Yeah, so that's there's actually a few different angles uh, on this. One is that um, you know uh, I think one of the best still to this day one of the best um, you know monographs on Maximus is Balthazar's Hansers von Balthazar's uh-huh. book Cosmic Liturgy went through two editions. The second edition substantially expanded. I talk a little bit about that in the uh, in say the introduction of the book, but you know um, it's already like both of us are already, for example, and I, I had a I think I had a footnote to it, or I guess here in this book an endnote to to a letter he wrote somewhere around 1939 to a friend, and he refers to Maximus as the Hegel of the Greek fathers, mm. um, and and so. Balthazar himself in, in his book, Cosmic Liturgy, is pretty clear from the, from the outset that he, he sees in Maximus, among other things, he sees in Maximus someone who can, quote, look Hegel straight into the eye. Uh, mm. that's, that's from his book. And, and, but but the, so these are images. But the re, so just to say, he, so there is, there is sort of in the background to even within the, like the, the, you know, the uh, waters of Maximus scholarship, which are relatively small compared to other oceans, um, he, uh, he's, he's already kind of put in the water a little bit, this connection. Now, personally, I didn't, I didn't make a lot of that when I first like read Balthasar's book years ago. Um, I certainly didn't have Hegel in mind when I started reading Maximus and when I started taking grad courses on him and writing on him. And actually it was a different scholar who, who had written a book on like Hegel, Hegel and Augustine. And he, he, he was at Boston college at the time. And he like, I remember giving a presentation, a kind of like early version of just like a, a summary of where I was headed at, at, at uh, Boston college. And he was actually the one in, in the um, question and answer who said, you know, is this, have you, ha, have you considered the connections with like Hegel? And I was like, I don't know. I've never read Hegel. Like, like basically <laughs> just the, like, you know, the kind of uh, excerpts that everyone reads in, in surveys or whatever, but you know, it's like, no, no, like that's not, I don't know. You tell me you wrote a book right. half, half on Hegel, you know? And, and so it, it kind of put, put a bug in my ear a little bit about that. I still didn't quite follow that, track that down, but then it was about halfway through my dissertation year. And this book is an is expanded version of the dissertation. Um, I decided to kind of just say, I was like, I needed a pause. And because I guess, I don't know, there's something odd about me. I, I decided to turn to Hegel for a while to take a break <laughs> from Maximus or whatever. Uh, and actually I went into reading Hegel sort of um, kind of, um, I guess, prejudiced against him because a lot of what I had heard in the theology world was Hegel was bad. Hegel ruined 20th century systematic theology. Hegel ruined the Trinity and, you know, all, all this stuff. And, and, and moreover, the kind of sub narrative is that like Schelling, especially the late Schelling, when he's brought into uh, to kind of refute Hegel after Hegel's death, um, you know, the late Schelling sort of returns us to a better, more pre-German uh, idealist, uh, closer to my, like what you might call a classical theist even viewpoint, um, though with a, with with oddities, of course, uh, in in his lectures. And so I was sort of like uh, going into reading Hegel. I was like, well, look, this is somebody I should just understand better. I hear his name thrown around a lot. 
um, now I'm now people are saying I sound like him, like when I'm talking about <laughs> Maximus, and I still get that to this day. I still get that, and I'm like, okay, uh, so I just need to know more about him. So, but I, I have to say, even though I went in kind of prejudiced against him, and to this day, a lot of my friends and even people I consider like you know masters or superiors for sure are much less keen on him than I have become. And so when I really jumped into Hegel. Um, and I don't know, you know, part, I don't always know how to parse out. Was, was that because I was already so far into Maximus uh-huh. that when I went to German idealism and Hegel in particular, I was already sort of reading it through. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, who can say a lot of times how those things are uh, disentangled or whether they can be. Um, and so anyway, yeah, I, I, I guess I, so on a, on a formal level, I kind of ended up seeing what Balthazar was getting at. Which is yeah. it really is a is kind of an uh, sure mutatis mutandi like lots of differences and of course you know I wouldn't I think I even do say in the conclusion of the book I, I don't mean to make Maximus a, a mere proto Hegel but at some point you have to say you know when when both thinkers specifically on the question of like say the absolute and 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 creation or the creator creature distinction and the way that they run that through what I would call Christology or in the book Christologic um, and that such that that becomes everything that becomes the logic of the world, the logic of creation, the logic of deification, the logic of everything. Um, there are some striking similarities that arise there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. Your, yeah, your conclusion makes uh, a lot of things um, kind of make some sort of stark statements uh, that might show <laughs> might show why uh, there is some connection between uh, Hegel and and your thinking here on Maximus. Um, I have you know, I had so many questions. I'm not for one. I'm not sure I understood half of what you said, but I take that to be a knock against me, not against you. Uh, maybe not. You, maybe you, not. <laughs> No, no, it's it's always uh, well, even one of my questions just has to do with the nature of what we call historical theology. Um, Mm -hmm. But but I um, but yeah, so anyway, but I think I probably uh, am less of a philosopher uh, than I want to be. Um, So I read stuff like this and it stretches me a lot further. And I I realize like, oh, I still have a lot of work to do and a lot of things that I can can learn. Um, so I always appreciate uh, being able to talk with people like you uh, and and sort of help me uh, kind of make make the next step, as it were. Mm. But but as to this question of creator creation distinction, I didn't really want to go there, but you you did mention it, and we've mentioned <laughs> it on the podcast because I could tell it cut you could in your conclusion it's kind of funny. You could tell that it kind of bothers you um, <laughs> that that people will make this kind of. Um, uh, will press you on this question, but but the sort of the implication of this whole study uh, on Maximus. I, I, well, actually, I guess we should start with the, the quote itself. So uh, the the you basically in the whole book you try to unpack the word of God, very God wills that the mystery of His incarnation be actualized always and in all things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your your project, as I understand it, is to try to take this seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so there, as you say in your conclusion, some people might be worried uh that this this kind of uh destroys the creator creation distinction it could become a kind of pantheism um mm-hmm. so and and that's basically i mean in broad brushstrokes i guess that's where the worries about hegel come in but that's yeah. not really attending to the details uh that's more just saying well in broad brushstrokes um you could make these connections yeah yeah and that's uh 
and that's the thing, you know, it's, uh, and, and, and I guess I should say this. I, I don't, you know, sometimes I don't know if I've had enough. It's, it's funny because I'll say a few things here just but to kind of uh, by way of like throat clearing before I get to a, an answer. But one is that this is a weird world we live in now where like we've got interviews, we've got uh, social media interactions, we've got, you know, and like there's always been rumors and discussions and so forth. But like it's I, I need to uh, this is more for myself. I need to like remind myself that, look, even though I wrote, wrote some of the stuff three, four years ago you know, given the publication processes, the pandemic, all this stuff, the full, the full kind of, you know, presentation is just not out there yet until October 15th, mm -hmm. you know, for people right. to read. And, um, and so, so I would say like, these questions are exactly the right ones. I think worries about creator creature distinction is the right one. Um, I mean, honestly, the, the creator creature distinction has always been what has uh, motivated the entire development of patristic Christology. I mean, you know, you read like, like choose, I always like to say, you know, uh, let's say Theodor de Cyrus's um, Aaronistes. I mean, how does he begin? Well, he begins with these abstract distinctions. Look, we know what it means to say God is immortal. We know what it means to say God is immutable. Um, and that clashes with what we're what we're seeing with a certain formulation articulation of Christology. So, so right there, the, the concerns are Nicaea. It's already there, right? Begotten, not made. Well, are those the same? Well, no. Well, why not? Well, what's the distinction there between being made, created, versus being begotten, which is not necessarily the argument goes, not necessarily the same thing. So that's all fine, and it's natural. Like in other words, it's inherent, it's intrinsic to the to this very. And I think I say that somewhere in the conclusion too. Like, look, every every kind of advance or deeper um, a, attempt to at a deeper uh, penetration into the mystery of Christ always seems scandalous at first. Mm. And it's not to say that my book is somehow some kind of groundbreaking thing. I'm just saying Maximus. Like back back mm -hmm. to him. I mean, he he was actually right tortured as an eighty year old man for, for this stuff. And, and so I don't blame anyone for having these questions or raising these questions. That's why I could kind of sense that at the end of the conclusion, I really wanted to anticipate some of this. However, what I want to say like about the creator creature distinction is, you know, let's just take the creed, um, begotten, not made consubstantial with the father. Well, okay. The very one who's called begotten, not made is also just a little bit down in the creed called and he was made man. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's, it's in the Latin, it's the same verb even that's repeated in the Greek. It's slightly mm -hmm. different, but um, so now we have a subject to put it this way, who is begotten, not made and made. <laughs> right. So, so this is, and I'm not, I'm not making a, a strong claim that, you know, I obviously think, and I see it, there's some ambiguity around it. That's what generated the later controversies, but um but just to say, like, certainly from Maximus' perspective, looking back, I mean, he's he has the benefit of time and, the, and development in the sense that it's not Nicaea. We've seen Cyril and Nestorius. We've seen Chalcedon. We have these post-Chalcedonian debates that I do think are, in general, somewhat neglected in the details. And the developments that happen there and part of the book's purpose here, as well as to kind of bring those forth a little more. I mean, a lot of stuff's not even translated uh, a lot of it is edited, but some of it isn't. And so it's just historically it's not as available. But the developments that happen post-Chalcedon are, are fundamental because, and this is where I'd want to push back against a kind of survey approach to all this, you know, like the the uh, uh, Monenergist controversy, 
or the the uh, the monothelite controversy. I know that it's easier to teach it in such a way that's like these are sort of bows that need to be wrapped up a little more, you know, like just later further issues and like let's just tweak it a little bit more and and, and clarify and dot dot the i's cross the t's. But I actually what I what I came to see in Maximus is that in order to do that, there there required a fundamental revisiting of very basic concepts uh, mm. in, in the dogmatic tradition that have always been there, like what hypostasis in Usia, mm. you know, like what exactly is the distinction there? And then further, how do they relate again after you've distinguished them on the level of logic? So there's all kinds of details we could jump in there and I'm not trying to get, but the bigger picture, if we pull back here, one of the things that I sort of want to push back, or I want to like answer the question or the potential objection about pantheism or creator creature distinction with, with another kind of question. Have we not at least in one case conceived of and affirmed the possibility that one in the same reality could be uncreated and created so that worshiping that person is no longer idolatry. Mm. You know, the, the humanity, the flesh of Christ is created. And, you know, you could go to like the Synod, uh, Lateran Synod 649, where Max has probably attended and maybe even authored some of those canons specifically says the, Jesus Christ is both created and uncreated. Um, and I think that one of the things that starts to like raise people's eyebrows um, with someone like Maximus is that I think there is an implication from his Christology and then the way he applies it generally um, that I think it starts to sort of uh, spotlight that a lot of people unreflectively when they think about, say, the Incarnation, they kind of think that the word of God is still, as it were, more divine than he really is human. Mm. The, and, and, and I think it comes from a pretty clear and like understandable and natural kind of uh, but simplistic picture of like, well, well, that's obviously true because the word of God was already there before the incarnation. Mm -hmm. And then the incarnation happens to him, as it were, crudely put. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he sort of takes on humanity. And it's almost like from that point on, he's naturally human, too. But surely his own personal identity is not implicated in the addition of his humanity because he was already there. Right. Right. And so and so now it's so there's this kind of weightedness, what I've elsewhere called like an asymmetrical sort of relation where it's like the weight of the true identity of the word of God is still his divinity. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that Chalcedon pushes with its sort of string of dualities or binaries, two births, two consubstantialities, two natures. Um, and then what Maximus and other Neo-Chalcedonians um, who are defending Chalcedon, but trying to like reintegrate it a little bit more clearly with Cyril. Um, what are the, one of the things they have to, to do is kind of really make clear that the symmetry there between, you know, mm. his divinity and humanity or whatever it means that he is just as much one as he is the other. It's not that there's this kind of weightedness. And I bring all that up because if we have, if that's true, if at least in the case of Christ, the creator creature distinction is not final mm. in the sense that it, it, it doesn't ultimately determine the singular identity of, of, of Jesus Christ. That is to say, as like a limit, like, well, surely God can't transcend his own divinity, you know, uh, and this and that's a line that Maximus uses that, in fact, in Christ, he has shown that he transcends not only humanity, but divinity itself. But what does that mean? What does it mean to transcend divinity? 
what it means, what it means, at least in part, is that it's like an old, it's like an old point that Gregor Nyssa makes in his Catechetical Orations that God, in, in, in it, so to speak, is not even limited by his own unlimitedness, so that he can become weak and, and powerless. Yeah, that's the one thing, right? He uses that Gregory uses the example of the fire burning down. That's the one thing we would not think that divinity could do. It, and that's why it's marvelous. And he says it's it's actually a greater miracle than anything, any other mm-hmm. anything, and it's greater demonstration of his power. Well, I think similarly, Maximus, with with a lot uh, with different terms and, and more developed post Chalcedonian language, he's kind of making that same basic point though, and, and following it out, which is look the way that the way that Christ is both divine and human uh, exceeds the logic, the abstract conceptual logic that we usually think is possible for divinity and humanity. Mm-hmm. And so, at least in this case there is absolutely no opposition or contradiction between a reality being created and also yeah. being God. Mm. And, and if that's true here, by what logic can we, can we get away with that and not be idolaters? <laughs> right. And like, otherwise we're, we're, we're worshiping a creature, even if it's the highest creature. Um, and, and so that's clearly not what is, is meant to be expressed. Somehow that's possible, at least in this case. And that's not some case elsewhere. It's in this, it's this, in this world in our own history. Yeah. And so, uh, and so I, now the big question and the wager of the book, and this is, we can get into more details later, but what, what I'm sort of putting forth with Maximus is to say, is there a way in which we can, does he in fact apply that? logic that which applies to that exception the case of christ does he apply that across the board does he eventually come to apply that the entire god world relation from protological beginning to eschatological deification in the end and my answer to that exegetically is yes he does and that and that, Mm -hmm. that actually explains a lot of what are otherwise anomalous or sort of hyperbolic or kind of radical um statements and conclusions and positions he takes um and then we could think further, you know, like, like more about the implication systematically or philosophically of like, well, what would be, what what would follow from that if that were true? It's a totally different way to approach, say, the creator-creature relation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, that's that's quite a lot there. I just dumped out, but um, I'd begin by I'd begin by saying, you know, by what by whatever logic, it's the case that we're not idolaters and worshiping Jesus Christ. If it's also the case that logic applies to the God world relation, then we're not pantheists either, simply. Mm. If pantheism yeah. really is concerned about, right, just essentially identifying creator and creature abstractly, like as if they're the same essence or something. Right. Yeah, well, you, I mean, yeah, so when you were talking, it, it reminded me of a couple different things, uh, one of which is uh, part of the project of this podcast has always been to try to read original sources and kind of talk through them uh, as we go, and we've moved away from that, but recently we've been reading some of the Christological controversies, and, and I, I have a paper out on Theodore of Cyrus, actually, nice. on, on deification, nice. But um, but one of the things that um, I learned while doing that research for Theodoret, and we've been talking about this a little bit in, in the other episodes of the podcast, is the nature of worship and what does it mean to worship a human? And mm-hmm. like it is it's a funny thing, like just to reiterate and to sort of reinforce one of the one of your kind of questions here is when like as I'm talking about this with my friends in the podcast, like 
you know, we would not even think of that as a question uh, that it might be strange to worship a human, but it really was like Theodoret's <laughs> really worried um, and Nestorius and, you know, they're very concerned like, hey, wait a minute, we can't do this. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we work our way around this? Um, and, and it may, you know, of course, obviously, you know, uh, we, I, the other thing I want to talk about is the way that you understand the hypostatic union and the hypostatic identity, which is, uh, uh, which is really fascinating. Um, but, 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 you know, and that, that wins the day. And I think Theodoret ultimately can concede to that, uh, even though he's just worried that it's, uh, Apollinaris Ritavivus or something. Right. Um, but, um. But nevertheless, it's that very fundamental uh, reflex and intuition of worship. Um, and there's a question of worship and there's a question of what do we do when we gather um, and, and when we say this human uh, is an object of worship. Um, and, and that's like and again, that's just not something I think that that at least, you know, I grew up in a, a in a Southern Baptist context in Missouri here. Um, and, you know, I never even thought of that as a problem. Right. Right. Or, or if it is like, yeah. And, and it's interesting to ask, I also grew up kind of more of like an evangelical, um, you know, uh, Protestant restorationist background. So it was just all about the Bible. And in fact, I think one of the, one of the things they used to say was no creed, but Christ. Yeah. I'm, I'm no longer yeah. in that tradition, but, um, but, uh, you know, so, so then of course the, the funny retort is always like, well, isn't that a creed, you know, yeah. um, <clears throat> no creed, but Christ, but, um, uh, and then also the, the deeper question is, well, who is Christ, right? And that's that's what it leads to all these discussions and debates and developments. But but back to your point, I think another way, another way that it like it's interesting to ask, why doesn't it become a problem? Maybe in the way that it does say for Theodoret or or whoever or a lot of these people, a lot of the fathers. Um, and I think one reason is again back to the point I made earlier is I think it's also sometimes because we um, perhaps unreflectively or reflectively. Um, assume that we'll well we're really not worshiping not just that we're worshiping a god human which which helps it a little bit more like the object is also divine and divinity but i actually think we often presume again reflectively or not that he's he's really just he's mainly god right <laughs> it's like it's like it's it's the the incarnation is amazing and yeah it's great and you've got to confess that there's two natures and all that i mean depending on where you are but um you know, like, uh, but, but even if you do that, it's still that it's still back to that, but his, but more, more fundamental, if you can put it kind of in a, an odd phrase, more fundamental to who the son of God, the second person of the Trinity is, is his divinity. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, you're, as it were, passing through the screen in your veneration mm -hmm. and worship of Christ, passing through the screen of his humanity. Uh, but really, the, the the terminus of your of your veneration and worship is his divine person, and even that yeah. phrase I think is a little odd, divine person, uh, because uh, as I try to point out in the book, I mean it's the way he's divine is is uh, isn't just by being divine; it's by being the son of God, mm -hmm. right? And I know that sounds weird, but it's like but it's like there is no divinity that isn't personal. And so the son is not even this, not even divine, except by as by being generated from the father. That's a personal act, the act of the father generating eternally the son. Uh, you know, is the way that the son is. But the, but what the neo Chalcedonians want to do later 
is they want to apply that Christologically and say, well, that's also how he's human. Mm. He receives in his person and he in his person gives real subsistence to the humanity that he has from the, the mother of God. And so, and that's in Calcedon's definition for them. That's how they read that, right? It's like, look, it's, it parallels the two born of the father before all ages, you know, but also in these latter times born of the, of the Holy Virgin, Theotokos. And so, so there's this like, okay, so the very same subject receives two births in the terminus or the end or the, the product, if you want to speak a little crudely there, the product is is the same. It's the son of God, the person, the second person. And so for, for someone like Maximus, when he's working that some of that stuff out, one thing he has to come to say is what, what that means is since the son is human, precisely by giving his personality and subsistent personality to the humanity, he's actually that he's actually divine in the same way, though that act is eternal, whatever you mean by eternal. Um, and so he is no less human than he is God because the very filiation by which he is who he is as God is also the filiation uh, by which he is who he is as human. Yeah. And so there is no degree here. There's no more or less. There's no, this is really fundamental to his identity. This is sort of not accidental because it sounds bad to say that. We don't want to make it too extrinsic like a garment he's putting on. But it's still not quite the substance of right. divinity, right? And so I, I, now that all sounds theoretical, and I in no way am claiming most per, most person, no, nobody I, you know, I went to church with was thinking about any of this stuff when I was growing up. But I do think it actually is the impulse or intuition, which doesn't even allow the question of, you know, we're worshiping a human being. That doesn't even arise because I think yeah. a lot of people think it's like, well, kind of, but not really. Right. He, he's human, but he's he's really God. That's the real part of him. Um, and and I think. Yeah. So anyway, well, I was going to say and you use the phrase asymmetry. That's the asymmetry. Right. That's exactly. the way where we just sort of instinctively move in this one direction. So part of what makes Maximus and early on, you said this is not really your idea, but Maximus, but it's what makes it so um, every you call it. I think you said the phrase like every development in Christology uh is is um striking or you know yeah, difficult scandalous. to swallow yeah. scandalous yeah well and and so here what you're what you're trying to get us to realize in some sense part of this whole project is is making the fully god fully man making that without an imbalance without an asymmetry saying whatever it means to be the son of god is both of these things yes. um and and that's a difficult it shouldn't be in some sense it shouldn't be a difficult uh thing pill to swallow but it is uh, mm -hmm. insofar as we've kind of been trained in various reflexes to go, well, wait a minute, you know, whatever it is to be human is less or, you know, and, and so we have to kind of be careful how we say all these things. Um, yeah. yeah. And just, just to kind of like hang a kind of, you know, reach for something that I think probably if anyone's familiar with Maximus, they're probably more familiar with this one point, which is right. That like you could go to the two wills and famously Maximus comes to more explicitly, uh, deny that what he calls the gnomic will of Christ, uh, or I'm sorry, of, of humanity. For, he denies Christ a, a gnomic human will. Gnomic meaning like um, uh, deliberative, ha, like un, a, a sense of uncertainty. You have to work through the options. You have to, 
you know, you, you lean more one take one way or the other. It's the way we typically experience our own life and our own wills and decisions and acts. Um, and Maximus says Christ does not have a, it's a, it's so in other words, by the way, it's, it's a mode, it's a way of willing. It's not whether or not he has a human will. It's how that human will actually unfolds in action in actuality. And he says, it's not nomic. Yours is nomic because you're uncertain. You're uncertain, not, not just about practicalities. Like, I don't know how to, I don't know the means to this end. You're uncertain about God. You don't even know God fully. You don't even know yourself fully. You don't know this world fully. And so you're wavering always. Even if you've got a strong sense, a strong a faith is that, that, that sort of a work within us, which starts to solidify and make it more stable through the world. But still, nevertheless, it's not a perfect knowledge. And what Maximus thinks is precisely because the son knows the father completely, there is no uncertainty about that most ultimate and important fulfillment of human rational will itself. That is God, God, the father and himself, the son and the spirit. Um, and so he has no wavering in his way of willing, um, no gnomic will in that sense. But, but, but the point would be not because somehow that, that therefore that makes him less human. Actually, it makes you less human. Right. We are not actually fully human. And so it's, it's just it's just another way of approaching the point you just made. But I think maybe it connects with people have heard about Maximus and the two wills and and, um, you know, the, his, he, he denies a gnomic will. And, and, and instead, it's a natural will. The, it's what he calls the natural human will of Christ, which is to say there's no wavering whatsoever. And then he has to face the exegesis of Garden of Gethsemane and all that. But um, but but the point being is <laughs> but the point being that. Um, from from Maximus, this Christological perspective is exactly what you're saying. He he doesn't do that because it's not like he's afraid um, that that Jesus will seem not so godlike if he's wavering. It's that he's afraid that he won't seem so human-like, and that's mm. so totally counterintuitive to us because we basically assume that the current conditions by which we experience our own humanity is the is humanity, right? But what if it's actually just a failure of humanity that we all are experiencing? And that simultaneously, the sort of flits or what he would call the logoi or like the principles that, that are there that do from time to time uh, give, give expression to what you might call the true fullness of humanity, which is not only to come, but has already come in Christ. So, so it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a counterintuitive, initially counterintuitive way of thinking about not only Christ, but of, of humanity and of creation. And, you know, in that fourth chapter, I try to basically blow that out to the entirety of creation. <laughs> that's a that's a different maybe uh, point of the discussion. But um, but just to, yeah, just to affirm what you're saying, which is which is that for him, we don't know even what we are right. apart, apart from Christ. We don't know what we are apart from Christ. Uh, and, and so, um, yeah. And so and so but that is only the case exactly because he is just as much the perfect human, fully God, fully man as he is God. Right. And and so uh, it's what I what I often find. And I kind of wonder what you would think about this when people are reading this or discussing this stuff that I'm trying to bring forth through Maximus. What makes it so interesting in a way, at least it was for me when I first read him, was in one way, it's the kind of obvious stuff. Like it's right there in what we confess about Christ. But on the other hand, Maximus has a way of thinking through the implications 
mm. of these basic points in like you know textbook Christology or whatever that that I that I think few, including myself, few had ever considered. Yeah. Um, and so I anyway, I think that's sort of one of his uh, one of the benefits of really engaging them, even though he's difficult at points. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I could say that in in a few different uh, places. Um, I had another question about his relationship to so-called originism. Um, and so, but even his relationship to the sort of um, the Platonist tradition, broadly speaking, because it has become uh, like, you know, there's like been a revival of interest in sort of classical theism and and sort of platonic Christianity and Christian Platonism. We've had it like you know, as a podcast host, I uh, I like to sort of pin where we've had previous conversations. So we've yeah. talked with Hans Bersma a little bit about Christian Platonism. Uh, also, we've had a great podcast. The other, so for my listeners who want more on Maximus, I have a great conversation with Ben Heigerkin, uh, who went to seminary. He and I went to seminary together, um, and he has a book on Maximus and ver this very question of what does it mean for Christ to be tempted, um, mm -hmm. and and so sort of that question of his humanity played out in in certain circumstances. So uh, I'll direct. Uh, uh, listeners to those uh, conversations, but but there has become this revival of interest, and you know, and Maximus uh, kind of uh, you know is not a um, uh, let's just a wholesale swallower of the tradition. Like he has his his own ways of receiving that um, and moving it forward in a way that's you know sort of faithful to the tradition, but but also thinking through the implications in ways that no one had. Um, and and so yeah, so it is. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I'm I, oftentimes um, I'm a little bewildered uh, because it's just you know I come I do c tend to come from this side that's very worried. About, I mean, I've you know I've heard a lot of the creator creation distinction. I sort of you know that's that those are my natural tendencies. So this was a stretch for me, and I don't know Lonegrand at all, which is another point. Um, I've read Truth and Method, I think, and with uh, Ken Parker, uh, but yeah. but other than that, you know, it's uh, you know. Or truth and method is that Gadamer? Method and theology, yeah, yeah, yeah you, yeah. you mean method and theology? I read it with him too, by method the way. <laughs> theology, yeah, 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 method and theology, yeah, 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 Sorry. yeah. But go ahead. Anyway, yeah. So there, there is a kind of, uh, yeah, he is a kind of a very different way of thinking. Yes, yeah, and you know, and it's and what I want to stress here, I, I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine actually on the phone uh, uh, yesterday about this exact point. Um, in one way, what what's really fascinating about Maximus though is is that you know, to, to go to the way I, I kind of parse it out, especially in that second chapter, on the level of uh, on the logic of uh, on the level of like natures and essences, which just very briefly, I'd say, you know, for someone like him, this isn't shocking to anyone. Probably your listeners probably already know, you know, the essence of something, the zia of something, the, the and he does equate it with nature as as had after Chalcedon was pretty common um, uh, feces. Um, it's. It's what something is, right? It's the kind of thing it is. It could be situated within. It's a species within a greater genus, and then that has greater, right? And so there's definitely this sort of chain of ever greater, more universal categories as you go upward, as it were, vertically. And then there's there's more specific down to the individuals as you go downward vertically. Uh, so porphyrian tree kind of thing. Um, and, and so uh, on the level of essence, what something is, versus uh who something or someone is mm. um which is more of, of the logic of hypostasis or persona or or whatever you know prosopon um there 
there it, on the level of essence, he's actually almost more of a duelist than anyone you can imagine. You know, he has a few points, and I make a big deal about this at a few points in the book. He has a few points where he thinks the essence, the uncreated and created essence, have no common property between them whatsoever, zero. Almost equivocal, like mm-hmm. in, in a kind of like absolute dualist way. It would only be absolute dualism, though, is if, if he thought being was basically reducible to essence and modalities of essence. Well, he doesn't because he doesn't think a person and above all the person of Christ is reducible to either of his natures. It's precisely because he's not reducible to divinity as such or humanity as such that he can be both in his person. Mm-hmm. So the way he is human, the way he is divine is utterly personal, which, which actually opens him up to those relations almost, almost into an inconceivable horizon. He's, I think the way I put it in the book is he's totally hospitable in his person to the entire fullness of both natures at once. Right. Um, and so I, I bring this up because the creator creature distinction from my perspective through Maximus isn't, it's not that it's wrong anxiety to have or a question to raise. In fact, he thinks they're absolutely different. They could never coincide essentially, but the question becomes are essences. The only, are, are those the fullness of what's real? Mm. and it isn't it's a person you know it's person it's 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 the well ultimately it's the three persons but like you know it's 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 the personal dimension of being which isn't reducible to anything that it like what it is nature or essence and so and so the way i also term it in there is that this kind of if you will i know this is a little uh anachronistic but like almost a personalist sort of metaphysics relieves nature or essence from having to achieve the kind of identity that only a person can. Mm-hmm. Humanity doesn't have, we don't have to figure out how to get human essence as such to be divine essence as such. We don't have to do that in reverse either. That is not possible. So what's, what's really, what's really compelling to me about Maximus's synthesis, if you will, is that he can fully accommodate all the anxieties of creator creature distinction. But he just doesn't stop there. <laughs> right? He doesn't stop there. And he says, well, that's fine. And in fact, if, if our anxieties basically just hit, they stay at the level of essence and nature. In fact, you'll never resolve this in any coherent way. You will either end up being virtually an historian or virtually, you know, Miaphysite, which he which he thinks is like, you know, the, there's a famous, well, not famous work, but a well-known work by Leontius of Byzantium, which is aimed both at Nestorians and Miaphysites, and he names it, it part of the title is opposite kinds of docetists, mm. um, which is to say both of them sort of have to make a mirage out of one side or the other, because abstractly, you cannot make these things. I mean, they're antinomies. You cannot make them one thing. Time and eternity really are definitionally distinct. You will never bring them together without mangling one or the other. Uh, creator and creature are absolutely distinct as such. You can't bring them together without mangling the definition, the logos of one or the other. Except the logos, the person, somehow can make them one. So, so I think it's important to just stress that because uh, just as Max, Maximus could actually move in a more dualist and absolute, almost equivocal direction on the level of essence, simultaneously as he's moving toward a monist sort of uh, you know, uh, uh, direction on the level of person, but that's actually 
that's part of what I call Christologic. Those, those are mutually inherent. Um, and, uh, and I think, I think it's that more than it's that thinking through the dimensions and the logic of person, which is usually where we don't go. Mm. Um, you know, so, yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, to some extent, when I was reading, again, your conclusion this morning, I was thinking of T.F. Torrance, uh, mm-hmm. who, who, you know, f- t- learned from Bart, but the, the how, how sort of Christocentric uh, they were. And, and so in a sense, part of what Maximus does is say whatever our, you know, we can't reduce Christ to these other logics, um, because if we do, then we lose the sort of uh, the, the totally... Um, revelatory character i guess um of what it means to be christ um yeah. and so and, and and it reminds me i also had Hauerwas on and we talked about like he makes this line where he says uh well if if you're you know if your understanding of truth can be uh you know um can explain to you who christ is we'll worship that truth not christ right. um and so part of what you're saying in the end is is sort of worship christ as christ as human as divine as this uh person who can transcend some of these dualities um and worship that don't worship some principle that you think could better explain this phenomena exactly it's it's uh it required the event itself it required the actual event of the hypostatic union. And so what's, what's interesting here is, and this is where I would maybe, this is where I kind of try to strike a balance between, you know, I, I, I read quite a bit of Neoplatonism and stuff for this book and for background. And like, I'm not, I don't, I think it would be wrong to be abstractly like, you know, uh, anti-Hellenist, you know, influence or Hellenization thesis stuff. Um, it's not really for me about whether or not you know, say Maximus or whoever is influenced by Greek philosophy uh, versus the Bible or the gospel. Um, what is, what's interesting is this perspective of where the person itself is what it, alone is what can make one with uh, uh, realities, which are otherwise abstractly antithetical, antithetical is actually what it what Another way to put that is that the very event in the person of Christ is the condition for the possibility of abstracting about Christ at all. In other words, it's only because the, the, the one Christ is already both God and divine that we can even argue about what it means for something to be divine and human at the same time. Uh, but he's already, in, his, in fact, are, uh, overcome what in theory we have a difficult time holding together. And so he, he himself, you have to come to see that the fact the person of Christ, his actual existence is divine human is already, uh, that's accomplished. And that's actually the occasion for us to be perplexed. And when mm-hmm. we're perplexed, we raise questions. When we raise questions, <laughs> we grasp for concepts that are familiar to us. Like, well, hold on a second. Can't, how could the immortal die? Yeah. How can, how can the, uh, that which is, uh, you know, uh, something that should be the first and therefore have no external contingencies or conditions and therefore, uh, you know, has a saity and all this other stuff. How can, how can that be crucified on a tree? And, and like in those, so, so actually the, 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 the crisis of abstractions as it were, and then some sides are going to go towards one way of resolving it, which is just one half or, or one pole of the abstract antithesis. And some, and now I'm sounding like Hegel, I know. And then, and then, and then one side's going to go to the other side, and then these two are going to argue, and but they're actually mutual. And this is I'm explicitly just being Hegelian. I think it's helpful here. 
um, they are mutually determining each other. Uh, you know, Nestorian, I am not like, I am not like Apollinarius. All right. I'm not doing what he's doing. And instead I need to keep them apart though. I can't, my positive account of that is shifting and changing. And it's hard. Well, Apollinarius, well, I don't want to separate the, the one Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and later on Cyril and like, I don't want to separate the one Lord Jesus Christ. There's one subject in the gospel here. Uh, but how, okay, well then what do you say of his divinity and humanity and the duality there? Well, that's hard, right? To keep together. So the real project of Neo-Chalcedonianism generally, and Maximus in particular, is to incorporate all the elements from both sides. So now we're sounding like a synthesis in the, in the Hegelian sense. Though so I want to throw out there that the word synthesis was already used uh, for the hypostatic union in Constantinople too. <laughs> it's not a Hegelian German idealist word. It's a Greek word, and it's a Greek word that's used <laughs> in the Christological dogmatic tradition. So, so it's already there way before Hegel. But... Um, but anyway, so so the Neo-Calcedonian and Maximian project in Christology is to kind of see what's actually true, and to go back to Hegel, one-sidedly true, and to see if they can bring together in a synthesis. Well, the synthesis is the person. Like, that is what it means to be a person from this perspective, is to be a reality which synthesizes its own parts, as, to use his language, the, the natures, in a way that doesn't violate the, the integrity of the natures themselves, but the reason why it doesn't vi and violate those natures is precisely because the person, its very logic, its structure, its dimensions are not reducible. They're not the same as the way that natures work abstractly. So the only resolution to how can the uncreated be created in time is not a theory. Like you said, right back to Harwas, it's not a truth. It's just a person. So I'm not even, some people have criticized me a little bit. Some well-known people have criticized me uh, already about um, like I sort of, what I see in Maximus is sort of a way to resolve all these problems in what they, what, what has been attributed to me as a principle of person, like personhood abstractly. Well, yeah, I have to talk that way sometimes just to distinguish the logic, but ultimately I don't think there is a principle of person that resolves these issues there is a person who is the principle of everything else right that's not the same thing Who's the, the logos, logos of all the logoi yeah. exactly the logos becomes the logi and the logi are the logos and uh but that logos is a person already conceived distinct from the father and the spirit right already has integrity as a as a as i won't say individual because there's a whole other thing there but a person a singular <laughs> identity right so um yeah, all, all that to say is, uh, you, uh, on the one hand, it's really interesting from this perspective. On the one hand, like it's completely like I'm on Hauerwas's side. I like Hauerwas too, and I was influenced <laughs> by him early on. So let's, I'll just throw that out there. But, and I heard that interview actually where it was great. But um, uh, on the one hand, that's completely right. You know, like yes, this is a person is. I mean, it's a person who says I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not not a theory or a really smart person. Um, uh, uh, but at the same time, it's, it's also kind of interesting because there's like another edge to that sword, which says, well, exactly because the resolution never comes in the level of theory in a certain way, it makes me more hospitable to all theories because I don't expect them to do the work of, of getting the whole. So I, my mm -hmm. book's called the whole mystery of Christ. I don't think that that whole is achieved on the theory. I think Christ himself is the whole. So, so that, so that, so I can look at like Maxim, the influence, Neoplatonic influences on Maximus and say, 
Of course he's going to pull some things from there. There's some truths there. They're one-sided truths. They're a part. They're a fragment of the truth. And they might even be necessary as a part of the development of realizing what the whole truth is. You have to see the abstractions, as it were. Like, like the event happens. You say, who is this man? Mm-hmm. You say, well, is he God or is he human? Then we have all these centuries that you've been documenting in your podcast. You know, all these centuries of argument and certain views and resolutions and proposals and so forth. And that very energy and dynamic brings to light the whole or fuller, I guess we could say, fuller truth, but towards the whole truth. And so it's even true that that nece- like, there's almost a necessity in the abstract, the failure of abstraction before this mystery in order to really see the truth of the mystery. And so all that to say is it's like a both and it's interesting. It's like, I'm absolutely on, on board with like the truth is not, you know, a theory, it's a person, but it's precisely because it's a person. That I'm also like interested in all the theory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, <laughs> going on almost an hour. I I'm uh, it's, it's, this has been, uh, I'm learning a lot. Uh, yeah, I really, I, it's, I, let's see, I was trying to think of like what, uh, what other things that I could say to kind of sum up, but in your book, you, you book in the, the conversation with, um, Arugina and his, um, his sort of way of, uh, 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 like, you know, you say the things that he learned from Maximus, uh, but he has this phrase that, that I had not heard much, uh, in thinking about deification, but the quote from, Arugina says, uh, uh, and, uh, and we understand indeed in what way this divine procession into all things is called analutike, that is unraveling, but reversion is called theosis, deification. And it seems to me that this is one of the difficulties of the creator-creation distinction. To some extent, a lot of the people who think very who, – who kind of really press this have a heart – will probably not use deification in the same way that Maximus right. is using it or in the same way that uh, Arugina is using it here. Um, and so there is this kind of fascinating the, – like the first part of this – I, I mean, like, I, you know, I don't know. I take this to be a knock against my theological education. I had not <laughs> thought about this this first principle, analutike, uh, divine procession into all things. Um, so normally when I think about theosis or deification, I'm just thinking about as a kind of soteriology in return. I'm yeah. not really thinking about what led, you know, what what was the first part of this movement. Um, mm-hmm. And and so the, I found that quote in itself to be kind of, uh, you know, like, oh, yeah, of, of course, there isn't just deification, uh, but there is this beginning and then there is this return and how that works when you have this logic of deification, which, again, like I say, I think this is probably another part of the difficulty of of understanding uh, or of, of being able to agree with Maximus or at least agree with Maximus as you present him in the book. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean I'll, I'll, I'm not a Maximus scholar, so I'll say you're right. Um, and, <laughs> well, that settles uh, it for me. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um seems i was convinced uh when i walked away but uh yeah so i don't know speak you, do you want to speak to the place of deification of this return so if we have this hypostatic union in the way that you're saying part of this is you know we, we're not even fully yet created into what we are uh, to where we are headed sort of yeah yeah no that's good so i i think so i do think um it's often the case when you, again, if you're sort of surveying or you're, you're thinking about doctrines 
this is something that Father John Bear likes to say, and uh, you know, uh, I think it's, I think he's right. I think it's, uh, it can be, it can be overdone, but it's, um, he likes to say, look, like we're we're obsessed with like carving up theology into like, okay, this is this subset of theology, this is this area, this is this branch, and there's a necessity to that. And the scholasticism, I think, kind of showed what kind of precision you can achieve if you do that. So I'm not anti-scholastic, but but um, but there's also another side. Uh, it's sort of a, a the other side to that is that, um, and it's partly why I named it the whole mystery of Christ is because it's like, you know, at the end of the day, this is a whole, though. This is a whole one reality. And um, and one of the ways we can do this with, like, say, the doctrine of theosis is to think of it as, like like you said, like it's a soteriology or it's like an eschatology or something. And even in the book, I kind of I have a chapter that does have to frame it that way. Uh, but one of the kind of astounding, and this, by the way, just to, to allude to a point you made earlier, this is one place I think Maximus is actually a lot closer to origin um, than um, than he is to some other versions. If you think that Christ is the beginning and the middle and the end, in the middle, he is the whole in the midst of it all, then in a certain sense, deification, a real, like, fundamental sense, deification is is just um becoming the body of christ like it is it is it is uh he is already a deified human being um and in this and and for maximus um there is no deified humanity that's not just simply the body of christ Mm. that is that is where to use cyril's line right that's where the life-giving sufferings come from uh but but when they come to you it's not like they reach you as something utterly separate they're very coming to you as the simultaneously the unification of you as a member of the body so it brings you to it as well mm-hmm. because there's only one life after all one one mm-hmm. truth one way that's christ so so you're not going anywhere outside of that if you're alive if you're truly alive you're truly deified you're truly made so um you know, origin would talk about it maybe in terms of like the image of God versus images of the image of God. But the more you become conformed to the capital I image sort of, you know, there's interesting moments in his thought where that gets kind of um, like closer to what I think Maximus would end up saying more explicitly. Uh, but I think the way we that does it. So it does it a disservice a little bit to think of like, OK, deification is it's like the last episode or the yeah. last phase or something, or the last act, if you will. Um, and even Maximus speaks about it that way at, at some point. There's nothing wrong in in and of itself with with beginning that way, but this kind of weird thing that happens the more you think that deification is not only uh, a result of, but in a certain sense already accomplished in the incarnation, then it's almost like the incarnation is an event around wh- like whose gravity bends space time. I mean, that, that like Ambiguum 10, for anyone that's really interested in sort of Maximus on deification, kind of on steroids, <laughs> uh, Ambiguum 10 would be a place to go. It's very long, but you, it's worth it. But there's a huge, there's, a, there's several passages there where he's meditating on Melchizedek. And he's, he's, he, notice, he notices that Melchizedek is called, both in the Old and in the New Testament, he's, it's mentioned that he's without generation. Uh, and in the Greek, it's like anarchos, without principle. Which is usually a term that Maximus reserves for the divinity as such, for God as such. But he says, well, the reason why scripture calls Melchizedek without principle is because he's fully deified in Christ. And so he becomes without beginning. Mm. 
which is to say he transcends time. But the only reason why he can transcend time is because Christ in the very act of incarnation, which unifies eternity and time, has already transcended time. So the, 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 the results or the achievement of this event, which looks like it happened just in the middle of history, like every other event, actually was already those results and achievements were already at work and at play on the temporal line prior to the time that the incarnation itself supposedly happened. Um, and that's so Melchizedek himself has already been deified for Maximus, but that's not like that's saying it's apart from the incarnation. He thinks, in fact, in a certain way, that's an expansion of the incarnation, even though it's an expansion backward in time. Right. So there's there's this really fascinating, you know, I think often people think that the deification is like somehow purely moral. Like you just become more loving or merciful <laughs> or good. And, and even as you uh, affirm of God that he is all those things, but in his simplicity, if you go that route, you know, his in simplicity, he's, he's also everything he is, he is, you know, singularly um, or in a unified way. Um, but it's like, well, then why cut out the metaphysics, the metaphysical attributes? Like, if you become more like God, and you and you do so through love, how could you become? How could you not become uh, less bound by time? Mm. Is he not? Is he not also above time? And 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 is that not, in fact, one with his goodness? So how can you become more good and not become more transcendent of time? Right. Yeah. Um, or, or, and you can run down the different attributes. And this is why I think there's a, there's a really short epistle, which I've translated. I'm in the middle of translating his letters, uh, where he said he, at one point he just says, Jesus Christ came to free us from the bonds of nature and time. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's liberation of nature and time. And, um, and, you know, and, and people can get worried, like, that oh, sounds sort of Gnostic. Like, what is it? Does he hate creation? What's the big deal? No, he doesn't hate creation. He's questioning whether or not we really know what creation is. Mm. And is it really something other than the incarnation always and in all things? So we're back to that statement that you began with, that, that I began the book with, you know. And it's it's if that is creation, if creation really is incarnation, then him, him sort of saying we need to catapult above the, the limits of, uh, of space time that we need to sort of go beyond the diastema of space time, the intervals. That's not him raging against creation. That's actually him refusing to think that the world as we experience it now is simply creation and, and that's it. And there's nothing more to think about it. Um, for him, it's, you know, creation doesn't really actually happen if, like until the end from our perspective, mm. until deification. I think the simplest way to put it maybe is, and I'll leave it there is, you can't really call something properly a work of God if it doesn't fully express the will behind that work. Mm. We don't even do that normally. Look, if I, if I say I intend to do something so that I take ownership of this action I'm about to undertake, but because of contingent circumstances, it doesn't work out the way that I planned. In a certain sense, the result isn't what I willed, and so it's not really my doing. Now it's a mixed bag and so forth, and you got to con consider contingencies, external, extenuating circumstances. But God isn't like that. His act of creation doesn't have to consider extenuating circumstances, as if He's creating in a vacuum. 
uh, or, or he's creating in something that's already just given brute fact. And so in from that perspective, you could think of it that way and say, creation isn't, it's not right to call something a work of God if it's not yet fully expressive of the, of the divine will behind it. And as we know, Logoi, one of the ways that Maximus defines Logoi that he takes from Dionysius is divine wills. Mm. So the Logoi, the principle, the Logi, depending on which pronunciation, yeah. the principles are in all things and they're already there. That's why he's not just a simple Gnostic, right? Because he doesn't think everything is just bereft of, of goodness or something. They're already there, but they're there as the Logos himself is there, to quote Ambiguum 6, like, like as if swathed in the womb, waiting to be birthed forth. The birthing forth of the word in all things is the actual accomplishment of the work of God, the full will of God in and through all things. And until that has reached its term and fully manifests God's will for all things, it's not properly called the creation of God. Um, there is another factor there that even complicates it more that I get into more in chapter four with uh, with our ability to kind of pseudo create and falsely incarnate fantasies. But I'll, I'll table that for now and just say, um, at the very least, that's the I think an operative principle that anything that doesn't fully express the will of God is not yet properly creation. We tend to think of creation as the first act that God did earlier that set the stage for the drama of creation to unfold part of which will be soteriology or, God, or Christ coming and saving us. And that's like the last act. And that's a nice, simple story to tell. But uh, but surely that can't actually be the full truth. Um, you know, and, and I and I'll just let me throw in the last little thing here. Just I know I keep <laughs> saying that, but, you know, as, as you can tell, I can go on and on. As you can tell, I don't get out much. But um, no, I <laughs> some of this, too, I have to say, I've been struck with like just just reading the New Testament statements that you know i'm not a new testament scholar so i can't make that kind of a claim but there are statements there that kind of make more sense now uh from this vantage like you were created in christ jesus um and that or, or colossians 1 he is the first yeah i was gonna about to of say all yeah. creation yeah or revelation three fourteen. i am the beginning of god's works sort of you know uh, echoing proverbs 8 um you know, there's there's a lot of these, you know, I mean, what does it say? Ephesians 2 ten, or uh, 1 10, you know, he's the re recapitulating all things in heaven and on earth. And so, like, it's it does actually seem, at least in parts of the New Testament, that the act, God's act of creation from nothing really is just his act of incarnating, being Christ. And that's bizarre. And the implications there, it raises weird things. And so typically we just write that off as like nice flowery language to say Christ is great. <laughs> you know, like he's really great. Everything is unto him. You know, it comes from him. It's unto him. It's through him. Like all that stuff is just nice hyperbolic, doxological, poetic. Yeah. Sort of. So, um, and and I think well, it's all those. It's it's poetic and it's doxological, but it, it might you know from Maximus' perspective, there actually might be a fundamental logic to it, an actual mm -hmm. straightforward logic that that's almost necess necessary. But anyway, so that that's a that's a little pitch for. Trying to find ways to uh, sympathize <laughs> with. 
Well, that's great. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, um, it has been, uh, like I say, a little mind-bending and uh, eye-opening uh, to read through uh, the whole mystery of Christ. Um, and I really appreciate uh, Dr. Wood, Jordan, for coming on the podcast. And so this has been another episode of the History of Christian Theology. And thanks so much for being a part of it. Absolutely. It was my pleasure.